Hi, I'm Lydia Brown. Hi, I'm Ruthie Shetty. And I'm Paul Harper, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director of the Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use the online form at adalive.org. Marginalized communities, including people with disabilities, minority populations, and people who identify as LGBTIQ+, have been the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and historically are often the least protected from public monitoring and data outreach. To understand the effects of COVID-19 on society and the role of technology in responding to COVID-19, the Social Science Research Council, the SSRC, a United States-based international nonprofit organization advancing research in social sciences and related disciplines with support from the MacArthur and the Ford Foundation established the Just Tech COVID-19 Rapid Response Grant. We are fortunate today to have as our guests two recipients of the COVID-19 Rapid Response Grant, our colleague, Dr. Paul Harper at University of Queensland in Australia, and International Distinguished Fellow at the Burton Blatt Institute and our boss, Dr. Peter Blank, University Professor and Chairman at the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. Also joining them are Lydia Brown and Riddy Shetty of the Center for Democracy and Technology, who will discuss critical questions and provide a framework for technological solutions to pressing issues like remote education and public health policy. The grant project will focus on the unequal impact of social and political power on marginalized communities, including people with disabilities and minority populations. So welcome everybody to ADA Live. And as always, Peter, it's my pleasure to turn it over to you. Thank you, Barry, and welcome Paul, Lydia, Ribby. Uh, it's, it's really great to be with three important thought leaders today who are having real-world effects at the grassroots level at a time in which we are living uh, in a pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, and which is changing the way we all live and work and creating new norms about social, economic, and civic activities that we all took for granted in many ways prior to the pandemic. Paul, Lydia, and Riddy each are working at different aspects of ensuring social inclusion, civic participation, fair and equal participation under anti-discrimination laws, such as the laws in Australia or here in the United States under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So welcome to you all. And I would start with Paul, please, to tell us a little bit, Paul, from down under you have just received 
this uh, Social Science Research Council grant, which is focusing on technology and um, responses, rapid responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. In what ways are you uh, focusing your research and shaping your response from a technological and other point of view to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, thank you, Peter. What we have been looking at is how the COVID-19 health surveillance and technological interventions are impacting on marginalised groups such as persons with disabilities, people with LGBTQI2+, and others with minority and other minority groups. These groups are the, uh, the hardest hit by the, uh, uh, the virus, at the same time the least protected by surveillance overreach by technology. So the unprecedented health, social, economics challenges created by the pandemic uh, require analysis backwards, retrospectively, and also considering how can we protect these groups. Uh, so we have four overarching research questions in this, looking at how has COVID-19 impacted, how has it altered the existing social norms uh, regarding health surveillance in public spaces, uh, how are the, the new norms how these new norms creating new sites of disablement and whether people that are, are now essentially disabled by these new systems who previously weren't, whether they are interested in claiming the mantle of disability. And you see that a lot with older, older people who don't identify as having disability, even though they could claim it in lots of situations. And finally, um, we're looking at how the, the changes brought about by this the COVID-19 and, and um, health norms in society will shift how minority groups are seen by other groups. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, I wanted to dig deeper a bit in a little bit on those important topics, but first I wanted to turn to and introduce the very important work being done by Lydia and Ribby at the Center for Democracy and Technology, like you, they are working at the leading edge of issues facing marginalized group, groups, particularly in the area of democracy and technology. They focus very much on online algorithm-driven uh, programs, whether it's in hiring or applications to universities or in receipt of social benefits. Thank you, Lydia and Rivi, for participating. And I, I turn to you both as a team to explain, please, a little bit about your important work and how it also dovetails at a time of, of great trauma under the pandemic. Thank you so much for having us, Peter. This is Lydia. Our work came out of a recognition that in the disability community, many advocates are not necessarily focused on issues caused by algorithmic or artificial intelligence-based discrimination. And at the same time, our communities are uniquely and particularly vulnerable to discrimination and negative disparate impact caused by algorithmic discrimination. Likewise, the folks who are working in tech spaces often are not approaching their work with an understanding of disability, of the disabled community's priorities or experiences, or bringing a disability rights or a disability justice perspective to the work that they are doing. And while in the last several years, there's been incredibly important conversation 
about algorithmic discrimination along other axes of marginalization, especially around race and around gender, there hasn't been as much conversation about the impact on disabled people and particularly disabled people who live at the intersections of multiple forms of marginality, disabled people of color, disabled women, disabled queer and trans people, all of whom may face forms of hidden discrimination masked by code that affects our lives in untold ways in every aspect, whether from the benefits that disabled people often rely upon to the ability to get hired for a job and to the ability to receive quality, competent and respectful healthcare. This is Rivi, and just to add to what Lydia just described, we're seeing all these issues just being further exacerbated at this time. Uh, all the ways that we normally see algorithms being used, they're being relied upon that much more heavily now when it seems that other options are far less available. And they're perceived as a good um, substitute or replacement for a lot of the in-person processes that would otherwise be handled. But right now, they're actually exacerbating a lot of the disparities that were already existing before the pandemic. And as Lydia mentioned, these already existed along multiple axes. And despite this perception that they are improving processes, they're actually really not. Thank you, Lydia and Riddy. Uh, that's really important and fascinating work. Uh, have you heard of were seen without saying names, actual cases of discrimination or instances of discrimination in this regard since you've written that report or prior? I'll just start with um, particularly over the past year uh, when it comes to benefits determinations. I think the uh, disparity has not necessarily been specifically in the way that the determinations have been made, but in how heavily they're being relied upon and the delays that are being um, worsened because of staffing issues and that increased reliance on these tools. Um, so it's not just the algorithm themselves and the kind of determination that they make, but how much the entire system is really relying on them. Lydia, would you add to that? I can just talk a little bit about what this feels like in real time. In just the last few months, uh, at different points, I've been part of conversations with other disabled people who've talked about not being able to be hired because they think that employers' applications requiring them to complete personality tests resulted in not being able to get hired anywhere. I was just recently part of a conversation where several dozen people shared similar stories one after the other where all of whom were disabled people of color who had gone up against job applications that required them to complete some kind of personality test to proceed in the application. And in all of the cases, not a single person was able to get hired. And no one can really prove what was the cause for not being hired. Was there some other reason not related to the personality test that meant that their application was not advanced and was not reviewed? Was there a specific thing that the personality test was measuring that correlated to an aspect of their disabilities. No one really knows for sure, but having heard that experience, you know, from so many different people calls to question both the need 
for not just carefully tailored and transparent algorithms, but also for hiring decisions that are not left to people to wonder what part of this is automated, what part of this actually considers whether I can perform the task required for this job, and what part of this is just some kind of a circus hoop for me to jump through. And in another context too, I teach as an adjunct professor, and I've heard from some of my colleagues that there's students who are taking exams for other classes that they've been asked or required to use some kind of virtual proctoring software, some of which relies upon AI in order to prevent the use of cheating or unauthorized study materials, or to make sure that the, the student is in fact the correct person sitting for the exam. And now none of my students um, had to take exams like that for my classes, but I heard from more than one student that they felt surveilled, that they felt that their privacy had been invaded and that they were worried that because of specific characteristics of their disability, being partially sighted or low vision, having tics because of cerebral palsy or Tourette's, or even having ADD or a gastrointestinal type of disorder would mean that they would be flagged. And in one case, a student of one of my colleagues was locked out of the exam by the AI proctoring software because of a disability related reason and had to beg a remote proctor to be allowed permission back into the online proctoring room to be able to finish taking the exam. Because of the pandemic, you know, more and more job applications are going to be processed online than might've been the case beforehand. And more and more students are going to be asked to complete algorithmic or virtual proctoring mechanisms just to take their exams. Wow. Before I turn back to Paul, maybe you both can briefly tell us, how does the ADA protect our rights under this, under this situation, in this situation? Well, especially when it comes to algorithm-driven hiring tools, um, we've been looking at particular provisions of the ADA that govern the kinds of formats that these tools use to administer tests, um, the kinds of selection criteria that they rely on to evaluate uh, applicants, and also the extent to which a lot of these tools can also serve as medical inquiries prior to a job offer. So all of these provisions are especially relevant when algorithms are being used. The problem is a lot of employers or vendors kind of rely on these tools as an intermediary to shield themselves from scrutiny under the ADA, but they are very much um, beholden to requirements under the law, even regardless of the um, opaque nature of these algorithms. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, Paul, if I could turn back to you, clearly the implications of this important work are to public health monitoring in an era of COVID. How does this topic relate to your grant to the Social Science Research Council? Thank you, Peter. One aspect is there's a lot of new, new surveillance. So we've already got the um, sense, most of our workplaces have sensors, mobiles, phones, uh, laptops, all of these sensors, but the, the amount of information now that employers are gathering on employees is extensive. So the health data that they now can they are required to get by in some cases or are asking for means that 
in a lot of cases, you can no longer choose whether or not you disclose a lot of your disabilities or your health conditions, even if it's not a disability. And a good example would be, you don't want to return to work right now, like teachers in Chicago, because you're worried about catching COVID. You could be very, you might have a, a, a condition like asthma or something, another condition which makes you more vulnerable. You've never disclosed it because if, this, if you read statistics, if you disclose a disability, as we've already heard, the chances of getting a job is reduced. So these people may have worked for 20 years for this employer, never bothered telling them details about their medical condition that is irrelevant to their job. Suddenly, they don't feel safe going to work. And the only reason they can justifiably not go to work is because they have a disability. So it's forcing them to come out and have a, to disclose their disability or potentially lose their job. Because we have you from down under, Australia, of course, has the uh, Disability Discrimination Act, I believe, the DDA, which in yes. many ways is parallel to our ADA. Uh, how would the DDA, and perhaps as an expert on international human rights as well, under the UN Convention on the Person, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, how would those legal paradigms uh, address this sort of issue? And would it be in ways similar to the Americans with Disabilities Act? Whether, well, one of the first questions is whether COVID-19 is a disability, and that will depend on some countries they regard dis dis diseases as a disability. And even if COVID isn't a disability, if you look at the uh, factors that come with COVID, so you, you, uh, a lot of the medical conditions that flow would be anyway. Uh, but trying to identify um, I mean, our algorithmic discrimina disability discrimination, I'll leave that to my colleagues who run this call because they've written comprehensive reports, which are amazing in relation just to the health surveillance and the safety implications. Well, if in a lot of cases, employers are mandated to collect this data and to do it by this government. So employers, you've got no protection. The, the employer has to do it. They, or they, if they don't have to, it's a reasonable, reasonable requirement to implement their uh, health and safety duties. So you've got very little recourse if an employer says, I want to know about um, why you're coughing for example, and so why, why do you have that cough? Well, I've got asthma. Can you prove it? Um, you know, so you, suddenly this person who had asthma, which this is a real example of a friend of mine, had to establish that it was asthma. Now, that's, that was okay for the employer because um, the employer was good, but how do they get to work? Everyone stares at them. So it was very hard to even get to work. They had to um, pay, for, pay for parking because they didn't want to use public transport. So it was a, a very big, very big um, cost for them when um, go back to say uh, Feb early February, they never would, they never thought themselves as having having a disability impairment. They just had minor asthma, which meant they coughed just occasionally during the year. But now um, it's uh, very very bad to have any cough. And would the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities have anything to say about this situation? Yeah, it does. I mean, Article 11 deals with uh, times, times of risk in humanitarian disasters. And you, you can't say when you've got, um, was it 200, was it, the, the amounts of people that have died from COVID, I've got it somewhere in my notes here. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pandemic. It's worldwide. It's definitely an emergency. Um, so, yes, it, the convention does, in, does come into play. Again, the only issue there is the, uh, the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, it doesn't actually, well, it doesn't define disability. It explains it due to, and when it got drafted, there was a lot of um, disagreement. So they've got an explanation in Article 1 
of what it, what a disability includes, and that's long term, short term. Sorry, long term impairment. So, it, whether it covers the disease is a, is a maybe. Of course, all of the um, if you, had, you develop a, a second disability, it definitely covers it. So, just COVID itself may not. But people who have a disability already, so if you have um, asthma or you have you're in a wheelchair and you um, get be, being negatively impacted here, it does have it definitely does cover you. But it doesn't necessarily um, ensure you, you're going to get any more protected, even if it's being followed, because as I said, it's health and sa- widespread health and safety. It's just how these health and safety measures are implemented have to be done in a more human rights way, where at the moment you'll see in hospitals, uh, people going, um, old person, you're not worth saving, disabled, you're not worth saving, and making choices pre- just prejudice- prejudicially based upon a disability age um, rather than actually looking at the person's capacity to recover. So those decisions um, would be impugned. Some has been written about the potential silver linings, as it were, uh, of not of the COVID pandemic, of course, but of the new norms that may result in terms of work and social benefits and, and social interaction as a result of the pandemic. Is there any... If done well, is there any potential upside to improve the inclusion and participation of persons with disabilities um, when we may, as a society, choose to use these algorithmic-based solutions? This is Lydia. I always recommend and ask people who are making policy decisions, who are designing and implementing research, or who are involved in the development and deployment of new algorithmic tools to consider how their projects can actually center and follow the leadership of actually disabled people. And sometimes, you know, that intervention comes later in the process, much later than I would prefer, right? You know, if a company has already hired a vendor to craft an AI hiring tool, if a state has already hired a vendor to craft a new algorithm to determine Medicaid eligibility for long-term supports and services, then at that point, it's too late to consider disabled people's perspectives as to whether or not to implement that tool from the beginning since they've already started down the road. They've made the decision, we're going to be using this tool, but that doesn't mean that they can't pause and consider For what purpose will this tool be used? How widely will it be used? What limitations or 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 uh, what limitations or other forms of um, control are we placing on this particular tool? And how are we auditing it? How often are we auditing it? And who is determining the standard by which it applies and what it means for it to be effective and useful? And are those people actually from disabled communities and other marginalized communities? or not. But going further back, you know, if someone is considering, should we be adopting or developing a new algorithmic tool for a particular process, that decision shouldn't be made in the absence of collaboration with and conversation with the people who will be the most impacted, and therefore who will have the most to lose. So if a state government is thinking about implementing a new algorithmic tool, for assessment or allocation of benefits, then it is incumbent upon them not just to passively seek public input, as sometimes can be the case, 
Um, but to actively solicit not just the input, but the leadership and the priorities of the people who are receiving those kinds of benefits already and the people who are planning to be and believe they're likely needing to require such benefits in the future in deciding whether even to implement such a tool and if so, how it ought to be used, where it fits into the process and how it needs to be audited and how its functionality needs to be limited as well as made transparent, as well as actually accountable to the people whose lives it might affect. And the same goes for any other context. And really it just comes back to remembering that we as disabled people don't exist simply to be consulted after the fact or to be asked to provide some advice that might not actually be taken into consideration, but disabled people need to be partners in policymaking, in research, in design, in programming, in coding, and in implementation and in auditing. At the end of the day, can this be done well? And are you aware of any examples of which our listeners might look to as leading edge examples of, of the type of inclusiveness and participation that Lydia is talking about? I think we tend to see leading edge used as more of a selling point to begin with rather than part of the um, analysis after the fact, um, particularly thinking about it with regard to um, constant changes in the way that states are using benefits discrimination tools um, and in the new up and coming uh, hiring tools that are becoming increasingly popular. Um, we haven't yet seen uh, tools where we can confidently say that they are good or they, they are providing a model that people should be following. Um, you know, there are areas that seem to be promising, but uh, it can be kind of premature to think now of them as um, you know, foolproof or as, as too promising. Um, and especially when it comes to tools that can have such dire implications if not used correctly, I think it's better to tread carefully and be cautiously optimistic rather than um, going ahead and endorsing any particular kinds of tools. Thank you for that. At this point, I will say my brief interlude uh, as a thank you to Paul, Lydia, and Riddy, uh, ADA, ADA Live listening audience. If you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topics, you can submit your questions online to www.adalive.com one word, dot org, or call the Southeast ADA Center 1-404-541-9001. And now, as the proverbial expression goes, a word from our sponsor, the Social Science Research Council. The Social Science Research Council or SSRC, is a U.S.-based independent international nonprofit that mobilizes knowledge for the public good by supporting scholars worldwide, generating new research across disciplines, and linking researchers with policymakers and citizens. The SSRC approaches its work guided by five basic commitments. Fostering innovation, investing in the future, working internationally and democratically, combining urgency and patience, and keeping our standards high. 
To learn more about the work of SSRC, please visit our website at www.ssrc.org. And in the spirit of equality and the importance of the organization, perhaps Lydia and Riddy can take a brief moment uh, to tell us about uh, the, uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology, the CDT, which is addressing critical questions uh, in the United States and I believe elsewhere at this time with regard to technological advances and democratic inclusion and participation in society. Lydia and Riddy? This is Riddy. Um, to give a brief kind of primer, um, especially over the past year in particular, as you can imagine, uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology has been not only celebrating its 25th anniversary, but has been doing so focused on a lot of the evolving technology that has become especially prominent um, as the pandemic has hit us. Um, and we have multiple project areas from which we're analyzing a lot of the different technology um, that is before us. Our project is the Privacy and Data Project, which um, focuses on consumer data practices and how um, different um, private entities uh, tend to compromise or um, engage in data practices that um, can put consumers' information at risk and the different mechanisms that should be considered in trying to protect um, consumer data rights. One of the things that we're pushing for is comprehensive federal uh, privacy legislation. And we're also looking at all these different kinds of um, you know, privacy practices from a civil rights and equity lens as well. We also look at the way that health data is used um, within our project and of course, um, Lydia brought with them to CDT, the AI disability project um, that originated at Georgetown. Um, so that's also become a big focus of the privacy and data project as well. Um, and across the organization, we um, have projects ranging from security and surveillance to free expression to open internet, internet architecture um, and antitrust. So as you can tell, we look at um, all the different evolving technology from multiple lenses. We've talked a little bit about the use of law, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Australian system, the international system. We, we all know that disability per se is a non-monolithic um, concept, as is race, gender, and other uh, prior categories, which have served to define people perhaps in limited ways. You, Paul, Lydia, and Riddy have talked about the nature of individuals with multiple marginalized identities. Uh, that term has become uh, known as intersectionality. Perhaps, Paul, you can start with, is this an evolution of thinking about individual difference in society? Is this intersectionality concept complement uh, the disability perspective, or is it the next iteration of thinking about individual difference uh, in our societies. Well, thank you, Peter. I, I think I would go so bold to say that I think this is going to shift into a whole new way of thinking. The inter idea of vulnerability theory, you've got intersectionality, all of these very important theories um, already exist. But if you think about COVID, okay, we've got, what is it? Um, 
about 22 million people, I think, in the US have acquired it last I checked. Now, in Australia, we have 24 million people in our entire population. So for me, those sort of figures are um, um, dumbfounding. But if you have that many more people suddenly have a disease, then there's all of, you have all those people that are associated with them have to get tested. It's a, and there's such a huge impact on the population across all sectors. Um, of course, some sectors are hit worse. And then there's dis- disabilities that flow from that. I think we, it's going to have such a huge impact and such attention on health that I do think it's going to unsettle norms and it creates a space where we can ask why, why do we build something in one way? Why, we, why do we have a health system that operates in one way? Why do we have these questions? Why, why, are they, why does um, triage in hospitals say um, operate the way it does? So I think this does create a space where questions that have really, whilst you know, the United Nations Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the Americans with Disabilities Act and other important documents have drawn attention to it, nothing can compare to a pandemic for drawing attention to health differences. And, and you, Paul, have written prominently about mental versus physical disability or psychosocial, psychiatric disability and the types of stigma that is born yes. within this concept of disability. Yeah, it was, um, I was privileged to work with you, Peter, on that with hierarchies of impairment and the idea that different impairment groups are treated differently. And this, one of the areas I looked at, which really dumbfounded me, was in workers' compensation. So if you're injured at work, if I'm injured at work and my arm goes into into a blender and I lose it, I'm immediately treated as a person with a disability. I immediately get support. I immediately get treated well. If I'm the person um, standing next to the person and I develop PTSD or a psychiatric, psychiatric injury, um, in some jurisdictions, you have to wait six months to get protection, get full protection. And then at the end of the day, they, they, a lot of jurisdictions even say, well, it has to be a higher degree of impairment for a psychiatric injury than a physical one to get um, a payout. So the treatment there, negligence also treats it different. Um, and that's just in the law. And in practice, um, I mean, you can just think about people walking down the street. If someone walks down the street muttering to themselves um, who's having twitches, People treat them, react one way. If I walk down the street with a guide dog and bump into someone, I, I'm, I'm, I've got a guide dog named Shul, incidentally. I can guarantee you the reaction's different. So nicely, as usual, Paul, led me into my next question, which was to Lydia and Riddy, and that is, number one, is there something about this new norms that are developing in the COVID pandemic that will act to shift a paradigm from a more monolithic view of disability or sexual orientation and gender identity or race to this more differentiated intersectional self. Lydia and Riddy, what do you think about that, that, that idea that this new norm or this, this new environment we're living in is either an opportunity or a detriment to think differently about conceptions that we've long held? This is Lydia. Whenever we talk about disability, we have to acknowledge and understand that everything we think we know about disability is shaped by society, by culture, by language, and by other social forces and systems and structures and processes of power and domination. And all of that might sound very conceptual, very heady, but what that means, right, is that what we think of as a disability who we count as disabled, 
who we recognize as having a disability has always shifted. Even just half a century ago, myopia or nearsightedness was widely considered to be a disability in a very different way than it is today. 50 years ago or, or longer, there were advertisements that, that shunned or, or looked down upon the idea of hitting somebody who wore glasses in the same way as similarly quaint chauvinistic videos might have looked down upon the idea of a man hitting a woman as somehow uniquely extra wrong. When of course, you know, it's wrong to hit people, right? Like we generally in society discourage unprovoked, unjustified violence and aggression. But there was this idea that, you know, women should especially not be hit by men because it somehow is lower to hit a woman when it should be wrong to hit anyone, right? Or it was lower to hit someone who wore glasses, right? And now today, in 2020 and 2021, I keep forgetting, we're in a new year and we've escaped that morass, right? We don't generally think of having myopia or being nearsighted and needing glasses as a disability, even though medically, right, it, it is. At the same time, we can see how race and class and gender all shape our ideas of what kinds of conditions are recognized and legitimized as disabilities and therefore which types of disabled people can assert themselves under the law. So people who are more likely to have disabilities that are common in Black communities or Native communities, for example, might be less likely to be identified as having a disability. Disabilities like lupus or fibromyalgia or sickle cell disease, for example. Disabilities that may be noticed and responded to of services, support, or treatment in white people, like substance use disabilities or depression or chronic suicidality, are often deliberately rendered invisible and not responded to when they show up in Asian, Black, Brown, and Native communities. And similarly, what you know, I think a lot of society is going to have to reckon with, and we spoke about this a, a little while ago, is as this pandemic continues and once it finally, hopefully, ends, the people who are currently being referred to as COVID long haulers are actually now disabled, right? And the people who have survived COVID and now have significantly reduced lung function, that now have developed conditions that mirror asthma or emphysema, that now are experiencing brain fog or cognitive impairments that they were not experiencing prior to contracting and surviving COVID, they've now acquired disabilities. And it remains to be seen in our society, you know, how will our legal, economic, and healthcare systems adapt and respond to the increased population size of people with disabilities? And particularly, you know, what opportunities and challenges that's going to present to us given that this is not going to erase structural ableism or structural racism and the ways that experiences of disability and disability discrimination have always broken down along other axes of oppression and of privilege. Would you add to the to what Lydia was saying, Riddy? I think Lydia really covered it. The only thing I could possibly add is just that um, one thing that a lot of the disabled community has been bringing up is that uh, the mechanisms that we see being used right now when it comes to remote work and the possibilities of technology to facilitate people who have to stay at home, whether it's because of child uh, rearing responsibilities or um, health related issues, 
it shows that it is possible to build a society that can also work for people with disabilities. But um, I think the question that will remain is whether when eventually all of this ends, will people remember that? Will they remember that um, it is possible to structure our society in a way that everybody is able to access the same kind of economic opportunities with some flexibility and with multiple options for how we work, how we study, um, how we function. So I think the question remains then whether we will in fact see a new normal in the long run. And, and you led me nicely, Riddy, into my last closing question, which I'll start with you, Riddy, and then go to Lydia and give Paul the final comment. So what are we to do as individuals in this fractured, hyper-surveillant, automated uh, society that's coming? What is the responsibility of all of us individually as individuals uh, with multiple minority identities or otherwise um, to, to act and safeguard against these challenges? What would you say to our listeners? I think that's going to be especially challenging on an individual level to be pushing back against the way that algorithms are used. One recurring issue that we're seeing is that because of you know, the black box issue, trade secrets, um, just a general reluctance to give people a glimpse into how these tools can work, it's really hard for individuals to challenge how they're being used or how they're being affected by algorithms. So I think a lot of the change will have to come kind of from the top down. Um, we need a lot of regulations that are actually evolving along with the tech because a lot of the guidance that we're relying on it's years old, if not decades old. So it no longer applies the same way, no longer really covers the kind of situations we're looking at right now. Um, of course, there are ways for people to um, make their views heard. Um, and one thing that we talked about in the benefits determination report was that people have options for reaching out to their states through um, town meetings, through uh, the notice and comment process. Those options exist, but they um, aren't existing in a vacuum. They have to work along with every other stakeholder's involvement as well. So um, from the individual end, you can push back on the uh, tools that states are using. With employers, it's a little bit trickier when you're talking about hiring tools um, because you're pushing back more um, through private action or through the EEOC, um, again, with a little bit more outdated guidance. So um, it has to be all these different stakeholders working together, not really just individuals. Thank you. That's very well said. Lydia, why, why you became so passionate about this? And is there anything we can be doing either at the grassroots level or, as, as Riddy said, at the group collective action level? That's uh, kind of a lot, I guess. You know, as a disabled person myself, I have spent more than a decade examining and challenging the different ways that ableism shows up in our lives. And a lot of my work has focused on what I usually call issues of violence, interpersonal violence or state violence that targets disabled people. And I think it might be very easy for many people to respond to that by saying, well, I don't really understand how an issue of violence connects to the use of algorithms. Like, how is that related? And I think it becomes readily apparent if we look 
at the real world effects of algorithmic decision-making on people's lives. When people with disabilities rely on Medicaid-funded services to stay alive, to be able to stay at home and to build and to sustain community connections and to be healthy and to be well, and a state implements an algorithm that creates widespread reductions and terminations of those services, that is an act of violence because that is an act of the state exercising its power to deprive disabled people who are in most in need of care from receiving the care necessary to be able to live their lives. When states adopt algorithms to make decisions about which students should be graduated or passed in classes versus which should be flagged as fraudulent or cheating during their exams, which students are considered you know, not a behavioral problem which should instead be flagged for surveillance, like any of those issues are issues of violence. Because we know statistically that people who are una unable to complete school are more likely to experience unemployment, homelessness, criminalization, any number of other processes of deprivation and of harm that can follow someone for the rest of their life. And it may not look obvious, right? But when you start digging, all of these connections become clear. Then in all of the ways that we talk about algorithms as affecting disabled people's lives, they are all tied to ways that governments and companies are just increasingly automating decisions that relate to our health, to our freedom, and to our ability to be and belong in community. And for that reason alone, I think more folks that are invested in disability advocacy and activism need to understand just how critically important it is for us to be carefully attuned to the ways in which companies and government actors in our lives are thinking of adopting or implementing new algorithmic systems. And what we can do as informed members of the community to advocate against harmful adoption of algorithms and to advocate for meaningful regulation and community-based and responsive auditing where algorithmic decision-making tools do exist. Well, power, powerfully said, Lydia, thank you. Paul, we turn to you. The pervasiveness of ableism and other forms of discrimination technologically or overtly in interpersonal uh, communication and connections What's your sense of where we're at and the opportunities ahead to overcome these barriers and attitudinal discrimination that Lydia and Rydia have been talking about? I wholeheartedly agree with Lydia and Rydia. The, we need discipline, we need act, litigation, but also we need to understand it's violence. Another strategy which we haven't talked about is trying to look for opportunities. So algorithmic discrimination, it's, it's a problem. But there's also potentially opportunities where education, for example, we run it over a university, they can have flagged people who have issues prior to the person dropping out. So maybe there's opportunities there to help identify people with a disability who may need help, who haven't come forward. So there's opportunities. Um, I don't say there's, um, there's going to be a lot of positive opportunities, but I think it's worth exploring and working with uh, people that are developing those things for another a simple one is uh, which we already seen around web accessibility where you have programs which go into the system and look for look for the errors so blackboard does that um, reasonably uh, not fantastic at the moment but 
systems that can help identify where barriers have been put into our IT system, onto a network, and potentially help remove them before some of the disability hits them. So I think as well as the litigation, which, and the social uh, action, which are both critical and often are the reason we can get to the, the board table and to the managers and say, look, let's try and look for opportunities. So I think um, what we have to go with the carrot and the stick, and I think both need to be utilised. So, I mean, where I work at the moment, I chair a university, the University of Queensland Disability, Disability Inclusion Group, and because of where we're at, we're able to do a lot of major changes uh, with the university wanting to do them. And other places, you don't have that, and you need to litigate first. So I think this, the combination of litigation and trying to work, find ways to be positive to help organisations go from being discriminatory to promoting ability equality as part of core business. Well, Paul, Lydia, and Riddy, each of you have so eloquently and powerfully talked about issues that are so important to daily life today. That is fairness and equality and meaningful participation in society, not on the basis of a status characteristic, but on the basis of individual preference and self-worth and, uh, and uh, meaningful involvement. So I thank you all so much. Lydia, Riddy, Paul, and Peter, of course, thanks to each of you for being on today. And we want to thank our ADA Live listeners for joining us for this episode. Uh, final reminder, you can submit your questions and comments uh, for this episode online at adalive.org. You can get access to all ADA Live episodes on our website at adalive.org. All episodes are archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and other resources. You can listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live to your mobile device podcast app by searching for ADA Live. Finally, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marsha Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode and be safe, everybody. Yeah,